This episode is brought to you in part by D6 Conference, a pivotal event for family ministry dedicated to nurturing discipleship based on Deuteronomy 6. Empower your ministry team and family by joining us. Register now at d6conference.com. You know, you come to church all dressed up, and everybody looks like everybody's doing just fine. And then when you get down into it, you actually find, well, actually, no, there's all this other stuff that's going on that's really serious. And we as a church don't know how to confront this. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues that are shaping our world. I'm Clarissa Mall, producer of The Bulletin. Today on our show, we're talking about the opioid epidemic and what it reveals about our humanity. We'll also talk about tired pastors, why they're worn out, and what we could do about it. Well, friends, when the cats are away, the mice will play. Russell and Nicole are away this week, but I'm excited for today's show because joining Mike Cosper and me at the microphone is Bob Smetana. Bob is an award-winning religion reporter and editor and national reporter for Religion News Service. Bob's got a special place in our hearts here at CT as he served the magazine as senior editor and writes for us regularly. His new book, Reorganized Religion, The Reshaping of the American Church and Why It Matters, released this past summer. Bob Smetana, welcome to the Bulletin. It's so much fun to be here and to talk with a a fellow... uh... Uh, Red Sox fan. Yes. And you know what? Before Mike gets here, I've got to know, do we have a chance? We're fifth in the standings right now. Can we get a wild card? No, no, no. No pitching. I believe in redemption, but you can't build a foundation on on folks who failed other places. It's okay. It's okay. You know, here in Boston, we're always in this sort of perpetual state of mourning and hopefulness, all mixed in at the same time. Well, let's get down to what we've got on our conversation for today. When it comes to the opioid epidemic here in New England and in other parts of the country, our communities are fighting real life and death battles. Last year, over 100,000 people died in the U.S. because of opioid overdoses, and the statistics are heartbreaking. Men make up 70% of those overdose deaths, and people in their mid-30s and early 40s are increasingly the largest segment of victims. Whether you're in a city and you're walking by folks strung out on your way to work, or you live in a rural community that's been riddled with addiction, you know this is a problem that isn't going away fast. Joining us to talk about the epidemic and hope in unexpected places is journalist and former LA Times reporter Sam Quinones. Sam's most recent book is The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. Sam, thanks for joining us here on The Bulletin. Very nice of you to all have me on. Sam, just this week, Oprah's Dr. Laura Berman sued Snap, the parent company of Snapchat, over her son Sammy's fentanyl death at 16. Dr. Berman asserts that her son was pursued by a dealer via the popular social media platform, offered a menu of drugs, and literally delivered drugs to their home on Super Bowl Sunday, her husband says, as if it was pizza. Now, I grew up in the 80s and 90s during the war on drugs, and I remember those commercials, you know, this is your brain on drugs, any questions? And as a mom of four, I've got a lot. How did we get here, first of all, you know, where drugs are delivered like Domino's Pizza? Well, it's a long story, but it goes back first to the opioid epidemic that began with doctors overprescribing narcotic painkillers pushed very strongly by drug companies that made those painkillers. This created a whole new population. 
of opioid-addicted Americans. Along the way, the Mexican trafficking world figured all that out, began to provide heroin, which is itself an opioid, chemical cousin to a lot of these painkillers that doctors were prescribing. And so you began to find people transitioning from the pain pills, which are legal, to heroin, which is not. And we really created an entire population of folks addicted in that way. Along that path, in turn, the drug trafficking world figured out that there was what they called a synthetic form of heroin. Of course, it was not heroin, it was fentanyl they're referring to. And they figured that out in about 2006. And then they began to understand, they already really understood, that the best way for them to make money was not to grow drugs, but to make them. And this was particularly true in their case because they have access to the world chemical markets through several ports, um, particularly on the western side of Mexico, that in which they get all their ingredients now to make both fentanyl and methamphetamine so they can make it in quantities that are just mind-boggling and have really covered the country. We've never seen this before. One source essentially covering the entire country with the two most damaging, devastating drugs we've ever seen on the street. That means that little small-time dealers who use Snapchat have ample, ample access. There's no longer a question of where a dealer is going to get his supply. That's been satisfied. Now the big question is, where do I sell all the stuff that I can find? And social media, particularly during COVID, became the answer to that. So you've got this new state of affairs. And these are, again, the two most damaging drugs we've ever seen. I had always perceived until I lived myself in the Rust Belt in Southwest Ohio, that drugs were a city problem. But you spent a lot of time outside of Cleveland and West Virginia, Northeast Tennessee. What did the epidemic look like in those suburban and rural settings? That's where the opioid epidemic really began, mostly. It was not in the urban areas. It was in the uh, Rust Belt areas and rural parts of, of the country. It's areas that weren't prepared for it. And that's the time the supply was from doctors over-prescribing narcotic painkillers, opioid painkillers, and trying their best to kind of deal with whatever pain people have. But then it, became, it got way, way, way out of hand. We grew up pill mills in these areas, and it radically transformed what we had known of as an opioid or heroin addicted population normally in the big cities. Now you're finding it in rural towns, in very well-to-do suburbs of Charlotte, of Indianapolis, Orange County, California, this kind of thing. It was pretty much nationwide because the supplies were coming nationwide from doctors all across the country who had been convinced that they needed to prescribe these pills and then relentless refills. Yeah. I wanted to ask you a bit about several people in the book. One is this Dr. O, who is a physician turned pizza delivery guy. And he, he sets up beginning as sort of, oh, I think he's a hero in this story, the, you, as you introduce him, right? Heroic, beloved doctor. And then his story takes his twist. But I wonder what his story tells us about who gets to be an addict and how they become an addict in our country. Yeah, and I wrote that story. This is about Lou Hortensio from the town of Clarksburg, West Virginia, small town, 16,000 population, gone through its own Rust Belt syndrome. And, you know, he was a classic doctor there, moved there like small towns and got there just as the Rust Belt stresses were happening and felt that he needed to save the world and save all his patients. And they were increasingly demanding these pills and so on. And 
I wrote the story because I wanted to write about how doctors became corrupted. They don't come corrupted most of the time. It's more like a gradual wearing away of their own moral compass because they are faced with these patients who increasingly are addicted and therefore become more and more insistent, almost violent at times, always conniving. And soon he himself got addicted. This led to him being kind of part of the problem. He admits very readily that, that a lot of people got addicted because of the pills that he was prescribing, thinking he was doing the right thing initially. And then, of course, he loses his license and he ends up being the pizza delivery guy, indeed, to the very patients that were the people who were his patients earlier. But I wrote his story really because I thought it was important to talk about how this corruption happens. Now, some of the doctors were already corrupted and they were looking for easy money, but that is not the main story here when it comes to doctors. And there was another time you didn't talk about the problems that you had. You didn't talk about the addiction that maybe you suffered back then. And so you just kind of meddle along and you lose everything. Now, you know, Lou is uh, running a homeless shelter in Clarksburg, West Virginia, very, very public about his ordeal and about his recovery from drug addiction. I find him to be a hero, the anti-hero, back to a hero. But you know what he really is, is just a human being. This thread runs through the whole book of belonging and community. And I keep seeing the church show up. You describe someone and she's the daughter of a pastor or this person attended a church. And I think it's particularly telling that you say that this one particular woman, Angie, finds community in the church at various points in her life. But you pointedly note in the book that though the church was good at community, they did not know how to handle addiction. People who in a church setting get cancer or something like that, all of a sudden, everybody knows how to respond. A death in the family, you know, you come with casseroles and you come with very important help for that family. As much as for, you know, cooking dinner, it's the simple act of saying we're with you in a sense, you know, it's a very, very important thing. And churches uh, have provided that for many, many years, and we should be grateful to them for that. But they don't deal very well with other issues that are far more taboo. Rape, sexual abuse, and, uh, molestation, and addiction. And it's viewed as somehow the victim was to blame in a sense. And in the case of addiction, there's some truth to that. This is not like a black and white issue. They're, you know, you do have to use drugs to get addicted to them. But there's also this feeling of we don't want them around almost like a you know, kind of treating people as lepers and there's this church face you know you come to church all dressed up and everybody looks like everybody's doing just fine and then when you get down into it you actually find well actually you know there's all this other stuff that's going on that's really serious and we as a church don't know how to confront this now i say this as a non-christian but having spoken with many people, having wanted to write about churches to which I do not belong, but yet with dignity and with honor and with some respect for their stories, but not blinking at the truth, at the facts, I began to feel that this was part of the story. And very importantly, because of where this opioid addiction problem starts, which is in rural areas, which is in small towns and the people who are heavily churched. This has something to do with how we, we got there, the inability of the church to figure out how to use it. And I think it's that evolution that I think is fascinating among some churches that have figured out what their response needs to be. 
One thing I found remarkable about the book is this idea all the way through that people who are addicted are not different. You say in the book that the addicts have this battle of me versus us and that me wins. But then you say, this is not just an addict problem. This is a, an American problem. This is us problem. Sure. I, I would say one of the things that, that struck me as fascinating about this whole topic as I got into it was that I thought it was writing about drugs. And really, it became really more about America, what we had done to community, what we'd done to our own ability to bond with other people. This was really a symptom of how badly we had isolated ourselves, how badly we had shredded our bonds that kept us together, and how even in prosperity, or perhaps particularly in prosperity, we felt it was okay to be alone. And a symptom of all this is the drug problem. Again, it's really kind of an idea of what the addict puts into play, which is all about me, immediate gratification. The only relationship that I have is with people who can help me get more dope. And then the relationship ends. I think in general terms, that's been the story of our country, me versus us. And in the long run, uh, me has won much to our damage, I think, that's very, very important for us to grapple with and understand it and to uh, address, because I think it's too easy for us to not. I've got to admit, I read your book at moments with tears in my eyes. The reality of what exists is heartbreaking. And then just this craving for something more. You say at the end of your book that we're built for simple things, that we need this bounty of less. And you talk about community as being kind of like the way forward here. We've got to remember that we belong together, that we are every cop pulling a child out of a meth house. We are every addict who's throwing up in the trash. How do we get to that place again, particularly in a polarized environment where it is about me. What are the steps home? I'm about to do a story about several towns in the same area that are seeing a rebirth. It's not that the drug problem has gotten better. It's in fact gotten worse. But what you're finding is people finding each other, a lot of people in recovery from drug addiction, a lot of people just wanting a different thing. And what I've found to be very interesting is these small towns where you're seeing small businesses form and supported not by any factory, not by none of this is happening with any big magical infusion of cash or some big company coming in to save the day. It's all about local folks. I do find the story to be really beautiful because it gets away from that what got us into the opioid epidemic in the first place, which is we need magic, big, big answers to all our problems. The problem back then was how do we deal with human pain? The big magic answer was a pain pill, the same kind of pill for every single human being, a cr crazy, crazy idea. And we've gotten away from that. And But I think one of the things that we need to understand is when as a country, it's through the small stuff that you build social change. Social change that comes with unintended consequences is more solid and more likely to happen when it's small in scale. And it just takes a while. It takes a long time. We've been at this 40 years destroying all this, right? And so these small businesses that are starting up in this one town, Hazard, Kentucky, really horrible pro opioid problem, coal mines leave, all of that kind of stuff. Now they've got 42, last count was, 42 businesses have started in downtown Hazard. They have created 157 jobs, which means each business is, has like three employees or, you know, four, something like that. Some have one, you know? What does that mean? That means that it's the smallest way possible forward. And yet what's happening is you're finding this 
synergy of people all coming forward. And they are taking advantage of this new resource, a new natural resource almost, which is recovering addicts. These are people moving out of addiction. It's really, I like to call it the new coal. This is energy growing from decay like a fossil fuel. It's the new coal except no black lung. And everybody understands we're all there. We all know what it was like. So no, there's not a lot of shame to go around. So if you're in recovery, that's not a problem. Sometimes it's worth mentioning because people clap you on the back and say, way to go. Keep going. There's no big factory. There's no big freeway coming through town where all the people dump money. This is all local money supporting local businesses, micro-entrepreneurial kind of things. And I think that is the way to solid, sustained economic growth for towns, particularly towns like these. And there seems to be an argument in your book or kind of a recurring theme that being more honest about people's shortcomings. Like if you just admit you're human and you need other people, that goes a long way. Oh, I think so. And I think this is all about the little synergies. You know, you meet this person. You didn't know this person before, even though it's a small town. And this person has similar ideas and this person doing this and you're doing that. But all of a sudden you see some commonality. And I think that's what happened with the churches in Clarksburg. Churches in Clarksburg where Dr. Hortensio, or Lou Hortensio was once a doctor. You know, they were all terrified because they'd lost their congregations. All their congregations were over 65. And they were dwindling and dying and they weren't doing baptisms at all anymore. You know, they were, it was all just funerals. And meanwhile, the methamphetamine from Mexico comes in and creates this terrifying mental illness and people are out of their minds and the homeless population goes from zero to dozens or hundreds in a small town. And it's very scary. And all these, they're shutting their doors, these churches, and they're wondering how to pay the roof bill and how the, the, the electrical bill and the, all that kind of stuff. And then along comes the very difficult winter of 2019, January, February, right in there. And polar vortex coming down, temperatures dropping to absolutely lethal levels and groups uh, helping the homeless folks who are on meth, all of them, or most of them, come to these churches and say, hey, can you provide in downtown, they're all downtown, formerly middle-class churches, when the town was flush, hey, can you provide space for a warming shelter? And the first church did it. And then they had to do it several times, these different churches. And so pretty soon, all these churches that were terrified of addicts, terrified of addiction, wanting to have that church face, but now the very problems that they were facing made that really impossible. They just were on their backs, almost, these churches. They opened their doors to these people who need help at the very moment when they need it most. They save the lives of a lot of these quote-unquote meth heads, the very dangerous people, very scary people looking like. And in so doing, they open themselves up to a new rejuvenation, if they would look at it that way, which is to say they begin to view the church as not confined by the four walls of the building, but as the community itself. I loved this story, this awakening kind of thing, where people were saying, let's be a place where people can come to deal with this most difficult problem that churches have really never been able to deal with very well, which is addiction and all that goes along with it, which is scary sometimes. People out of their minds, people with sores and scabs and utterly destitute and frequently creating their own problems because they will not stop. They cannot stop using all of this 
challenges a lot of what churches think is 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 right and and appropriate and all that kind of stuff. But in the church's case in Clarksburg, I love that story about how they all kind of begin to gradually figure out that they can find a new life. It makes me think of my little Ohio town where all the storefronts were closed up, but that red brick church, it stuck around. And even when there were only 30 to 50 people showing up on a Sunday, they were committed to those ideas of community that you talk about, and they were willing to do the hard work. So it's really encouraging to hear that folks are stepping forward. They are risking in places where they haven't been willing to risk before. Certainly, we're all in need of deep grace and that committed love that you're talking about. So thanks so much for being with us, Sam. I hope that as we learn more and we become more compelled by the problems that are around us, that we will, as you say so poignantly in your book, realize that the least of us lies within all of us. We'll be right back. Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the queen of Christian pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the queen of Christian pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome back. I'm Mike Cosper, the director of CT Media, and I'm excited to jump in for this conversation and join Bob and Clarissa to talk about tired pastors. Barna recently released a study that shows that 42% of pastors have considered quitting within the past year. Number one reason was stress. Number two was loneliness and isolation. And number three was current political divisions. Current political divisions, about 38% of pastors are experiencing that. 42% 
say they're lonely and 56% say that they're experiencing a significant amount of stress. Leaders who aren't considering quitting are also nonetheless talking about those issues affecting the way that they lead. And 24% of pastors who consider quitting believe their own spiritual lives have had to take a backseat to pastoral duties. For me personally, this rings true, not because I'm serving in ministry at this moment, but because I know a lot of pastors. I talk to a lot of pastors all the time who are and while not all of the ones that I, I know are, are ready to quit at the moment, they certainly would identify with a lot of these stressors. There's been several interesting articles in the news recently about this, including one by a pastor named Alex Lang explaining why he has left ministry and left the church. Washington Post had coverage of this as well. So let's talk about this a bit. Why do pastors want to quit? And how do you think that aligns with why people think pastors might want to quit? So it's very interesting. So a couple of things. There's a brand new study from Hartford Center for Religion Research that has this data that's on the pandemic's impact on pastors. That's this data that, you know, at 2020, if you ask pastors, do you ever think about leaving? 80% would say, no, I'm not thinking about leaving my congregation. I never think about it. So if you ask them now, 50% would say, yes, I've thought about it. Now, the number of people who think about it all the time hasn't changed, but the number of people who it's crossed their mind. And that's for a whole number of reasons. If you think about it, the job of being a pastor is difficult already, right? You're trying to interpret the scripture for a modern world. You're trying to lead a volunteer organization. You're also leading an institution that is likely in a lot of trouble because of the collapse of faith in institutions, because organized religion is on the decline, because people no longer feel like they have to go to church, so they don't. And then the, the one that gets missed is, so the average congregation in America used to have 137 people. Now it has 65. And so you're trying to do everything you did with 137 people with 65 people, half the people. So people are exhausted and tired. And then we had the pandemic and the last election and the general polarization. So there's a whole host of things. So if they weren't tired, they wouldn't have been paying attention. I think there's this other thing that they're not allowed to talk about this. All these pastors are arguing about his essay. One of the arguments is there's so, there are a group of folks who say, well, I resonate with this 100%. Then there's a whole group of folks who say, you can't talk this way about your church. You can't say these things out loud. Because if you say these things out loud, you're a bad pastor who's harmed your church and you ought to apologize. So there's a kind of internal shaming and censorship of the conversations that pastors can actually have about how they feel because they feel like they have to shield their congregations from it. There has been like an ability to talk about your job in the difficulties of it more now than you could before, but churches is one place you can't do that. I wonder if seminaries are doing a good job of preparing pastors for the kinds of things that they're going to face. I looked at a seminary that's nearby to us, and only seven of the 29 courses actually have to do with the practical ministry pieces of their work. So we're asking someone to enter into a lifetime of ministry with seven courses worth of grief care, of marriage care, of public speaking experience, and we're asking many things of them once they get into ministry that maybe they aren't prepared for. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, the problem is that all these congregations and those seminaries were built for the world of 20 or 50 years ago, right? They're built for a whole different world. They're built for a world where people were going to show up. They either felt they had to go to church or they because they had a spiritual need or they felt they had to go to church because that's what good people do. 
So they were self-motivated people who showed up and kept showing up. Well, people no longer feel that. So if they want to go to church, they want to go to the big church down the street. So they're not going to come and they have the same expectations to do all the things that they had to do. I talked to Kerry Parker, who's at the Wisconsin Council of Churches, really interesting and smart clergy leader. But she said, basically, because there's been a real focus on self-care for pastors, right? Take care of yourselves, spiritual care. She basically, quoting another colleague, that there's no amount of self-care that can overcome the institutional problems. Like, there are enormous institutional problems with congregations. We're really seeing the collapse of those institutions in profound ways. So seminary can't prepare you for that. And and folks are not talking about that. Because if you talk about it, then you have to deal with the reality of it. And you also have to keep the thing open. And you can't really be like, hey, we might close. So that's not going to get anyone to come. And then, but then people don't know how to be with each other. They don't know how to belong. Similar to what you were saying a moment ago, Clarissa, like there's the institutional problem in terms of not being equipped with the practical theology. There's also an expectations game. And I think, you know, I don't say this as a judgment of of Pastor Lang. I don't know his life. I don't know the whole story. But what's interesting to me about it is that he opens basically saying, man, it's really hard walking around carrying the troubles of these people, right? All the secrets. And then later in the piece, he's like, but man, being on the platform and preaching, I feel like I was made for this. And that in a nutshell, is like, well, bro, let's talk about the meaning of the word pastor. I don't think that's entirely like to blame on him, but there is a sense in which culturally we have come to this place where when people enter into ministry, they're telling themselves a hero story about what happens from the platform and then the movement that comes out of the church as a result of that. And that's not evidenced by the definitions of pastor and elder in the scripture. That's not evidenced by what historically people understood pastoring to be. That makes you go, well, man, if you like being on stage and you're excited about a worship service that was full of you 2 and Coldplay, I don't know if this was the right pick in the first place. Yeah, we've got unruly sheep and we've got a shepherd who has an identity issue. Is this burden of caring for people's souls and sort of and, and then interpreting or helping them see God's will. That's a big ask. Right? That's a big carry that one of the ministers I talked to of the story talked about being at a funeral for an 80-year-old kind of saint of the church. And in the middle of the wake gets a call from a young family where the one of the, the children is in crisis and they have the an emergency folks there and can you come now? And the pastor thinking, well, this 80-year-old would have told me to go, but I got to go. But she had that kind of – she had to do both those things. And 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 you can't say in that moment, no, because that's not your job, right? There's a guy who used to be called the real-life preacher. Gordon Atkinson wrote about this once. He wrote about once going to a hospital where a child had been stillborn and going to be God's presence in that moment. It's one of the most beautiful things, but like really the – that's a sacred and powerful thing, but a costly thing. And I think we don't realize that about our clergy and our pastors that, oh, wait, you are really caring. You have stepped into a role that's really big. That's hard. And then clergy have such, they all, because they're, they are moral teachers, they have high views for themselves and high views of each other. So you can't say that. You said that thing. But then where do you actually talk about the fact that this is not working? 
This makes me wonder, are we doing the structure all wrong then? I mean, it doesn't feel like priesthood of all believers if there's one person who's carrying so much weight. If there's only one person that at the funeral of a senior saint can be called to join yeah, someone in the hospital. Sure. Bob, you wrote a while back about the United Methodist ministers and how they are weary and worried. Do you find that differences in church polity actually influence how a pastor feels about their tiredness? You know, are some churches that are structured differently better able to carry the burdens of a congregation than others are? That's probably a good question. I don't know if I know the answer to it. I, I can guess. So this is just my surmising. But yeah, I think different and different clergy do it differently, different pastors. Some folks have visitation things. I go to a small church now that the pastor, her parents are retired pastors, so they do pastoral care. It's a 150-member church. So they're big enough to have this, but they also, the pastor has said, like, I need help to do these things. So we're all doing it together. But I think there's also the burden that you are called to that role, especially in the conditions that... There's a ordination and kind of sacramental part of this, too, that there is a role they just play. But yeah, you can't do it yourself. And clergy tend to take that on themselves. They do it even if they have staff. They do tend to do it themselves. There's a hero narrative that you can't do it by yourself. But if I ask you to do it, then I run the risk of saying, well, why am I paying you? Right? Mm. <laughs> if I'm, if mm-hmm. I'm this clergy, like, you yep. need some other people to do this. Well, wait, what did I pay you for? I paid you to do this. Which, yeah. There's a, there's a fair part and an unfair part of that. But these worked also more when people volunteered more. Like, people don't volunteer as much now. They haven't come back after the pandemic. To a certain extent, it comes back to what you were saying earlier. Like, when if the church is in a place where it's struggling with the idea of belonging, if it's struggling with the idea of community, if people don't know how to be together, if people don't know, then, yeah, it's an unreasonable burden in many ways for a pastor to carry everybody's burdens. Now, can we do better in equipping pastors like we do trauma care helping professions to understand how to differentiate themselves and not feel like they have to internalize and all that. Absolutely. Can we change some of the expectations so that pastors are not thinking in terms of platform-driven here? And absolutely. There's lots we can do on all those fronts. But I think it does come back to this, this thing where it's like the institutions are unhealthy because they don't understand who they are. They don't understand what it means to be the church, to be in community and to bear each other's burdens. And I always think, I think the best definition of pastoring I ever read, I think it was Eugene Peterson who said that the primary job of a pastor is two things, teaching people to pray and preparing them to die. And that is a radically different kind of vision than I think what the standard American pastor signs up for when they think they're going to be the, the head of a movement. So I, I think the burnout is inevitable when those are the expectations. Josh Packard is a sociologist who studies religion. Josh had this idea called the Hamlet problem. Right, that if you're a clergy, you are Hamlet. You're the star. You are the major player. And the things that happen in your congregation happen because and churches have this problem too, right? They they're taught that you are the leader and what happens around you is because of your action. And really they're not. Or maybe they were and they're not anymore. They're really now a bit player in a larger drama that is happening. So that larger drama is changed. They used to be star, now they're a bit player. And so their ideas are, if something's going wrong in my church, it's because of me. Something's not happening, it's because of me. They have not adapted to the new circumstance to say, oh, no, we're in a different role here. That the environment around us, or they're, they're like one tree and they're in a forest. And they're not looking at the forest to say, wait, 
the way we set up to do this worked when we set up to do this. And you know, churches in America are in a different country than they were when they were founded. We're in a different country than we were born in. All kinds of things. And they have not quite adapted to this new environment. So we think it's because we did it wrong or we had control over these things. And if we can out-strategize these social changes, and we can't. If it were, you could fix strategy, you could have better training, you could just reorganize. People would have done it already. It would be easy. It's bigger than that. The tired pastor is, to use a terrible old cliche, there's a canary in the coal mine. They're really saying, I'm really tired. It's not just that you're tired and you could get better or do better. It's that though the, the mine is collapsing, it's the system is falling apart, and it doesn't have to be bad forever, but you have to acknowledge that there's a real problem here, that everything has changed. And because everything has changed, then you say, okay, we have to start over and, and rebuild, and the rebuild will be slow and small and difficult. My first instinct, I look at you, Mike, and I think about your pastoral ministry in the past, and I think about my pastor and how hard he works, and the church where my kids go to youth group, and the pastor's there, and how hard they work. And I think, I want to do something to make this better as a parishioner. Like, I don't want to be part of the problem, but I wonder if the first step then for us during this dismantling process is simply to grieve for the things that we've lost, like to be able to acknowledge that that culture that used to be so strong in our congregations that had ministries that were robust that were filled with participation that those days are gone and that's something to just be sad about for a little bit before we're able to start rebuilding something new does that seem like a decent place to start it does there's a grieving part that it's not the same right well what is what do we do how do we fix this i say well, i don't know i don't know well one is to say Okay, it's not your fault. It's your problem. Yeah. This is mm -hmm. not your fault. You didn't cause all this collapse. You did stupid things. Like churches did stupid things. But if fixing stupid, again, would make things better, it'd be easier. Right? right. I mean, stupid is a mm -hmm. problem, but fixing stupid is one of our many problems. Like that we I think we had this idea because churches think they have control of their environment that, oh, we'll just fix our stupid stuff and then we'll be fine. Oh, no, no, mm -hmm. no, 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 no. You have to say, like, it's different. We're going to have to change, and we need everyone. We need you. And one of the things that, that happens with larger congregations is that they become, for reality, they became a top and thing where your job is to show up and do the little thing that makes this big cog work. And that, that one unintended consequence is that people no longer feel like they have ownership, like they're needed. And they have voice. And so that's one part to say, oh, you are needed here. And we're in this together. And you belong. The other part is for the pastors to say, wait, we're in this together. We're doing this. Not me. Not you're doing what I told you to do. And my new model, you're, we're doing this together. And that means a messy, harder. And a lot of big churches are not staff for the kind of hands-on management of small groups of people. They're very lean staffed. It's going to cost more money. It'll cost more energy and time. It will require, it's going to be slow. You ever heard of Couch Potato 5K for running, right? If you ever want to yes. run, you never uh -huh. run. You run a little bit <laughs> of the time. Right. It's a long, slow process of rebuilding. We need that for congregations. Congregation yeah. and leadership of like, how do we work together? Oh, how do we build health so that 
congregations are ready for the race that's ahead of them. And I just keep coming back to like, dude, his, historically, biblically, the, the stories are always kind of the same. You grieve, you lament, you repent. And then comes almost always, then comes some kind of liturgical renewal. Like something, some kind of renewal happens where the church finds a different way of speaking about these things, praying about these things, singing about these things. I always reference Cormac McCarthy's line from The Road where he says, when one has nothing left, make ceremonies out of the air and breathe upon them, right? Like when we're in the ashes and the dust, this is actually a time where there's an opportunity, I think, for the church to do some things that are creative and generative and beautiful as a gesture towards renewal. But it starts where you said, Clarissa, with the grief, with the acknowledgement of like, we've lost a lot and we've hurt a lot. And I don't know that clinging to the old way and insisting that the problem is all these other things is ever going to get us there. There's a way to regain some things that we have lost. How does Jesus change the world? He comes, shows up, and he makes friends, and then he gets them organized and sends them out to do the work. I think we could recover friendship and relationship and community, which our society has lost. But we can have a lot of trust in the friendships we have and make friends, right? It does work. It's just not, it's, it, there's no five steps to that. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's where, maybe that's where the, you know, you read the Barnett data. That's where you start. If Pastor, you're burned out, you're exhausted, you're thinking about quitting. Before you do anything else, go make a friend <laughs> and see, see what that does to the life of your church. The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. Our executive producer is Eric Petrick. Our producers are Clarissa Mall and Matt Stevens. Our associate producer is Azure Phelps. Editing and mixing by TJ Hester. Music by Dan Phelps. Show design by Brian Todd. Graphic design by Amy Jones. Social media by Kate Lucky. <laughs>